Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 29. My name is DK, the guy behind this project. You've subscribed to the audio podcast and check us out on creativewelly.com for the video podcast. It's such a unique experience. Big shout out to John O'Tucker, our video producer for the video experience I just mentioned over at Empire Films. Check him out. Lovely guy. And also big thanks to David Hamilton at Flashdog Studios, the place where we film the Creative Welly episodes, and when you watch the videos, you'll know what we mean. In this episode, we got two amazing humans, again, having courageous conversations with bold humans. This time is with Emily Fetcher, a entrepreneur, designer, researcher, and current GM of design at Zero. Joining her is James Bushell, director, investor, and strategist, and the guy behind Motif Agency. We cover a lot of topics in this discussion from sustainability to ethics to leadership to business to accessibility and design and systems enjoy and the first question just to get us rolling if you're all happy yeah mm. yes do it what are your favorite names favorite names oh, random as hell oh. For for an individual, that's what, what just famous I, names, dude. I quite like Archibald. Oh, <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. Archie, you, you know, can shorten it. Archie, so, yeah, yeah. Of course, that's yeah, a nice yeah. Name. yeah, yeah. One of my good friend's um, uh, son is is Archie. I believe it is so Archibald. Yeah, uh, and then her that was her her the other sibling. So it's actually his his son is Archie, but hers. Um, Dashiell. Dashiell? Yeah. Wow. To the author. Dash, yeah. for short. I quite like Dash. Which is actually, quite yeah. cute for a little boy. Yeah. Superhero name, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So what do you, what's your favorite name, Zan? Uh, Archibald, which just raised the temperature. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my partner's daughter is Artemisia. And I remember the wow. first time I ever heard that as a name. That was pretty cool. I think that's a pretty cool name. Missy, for short. Nice. <laughs> I like it when you can get quite a formal name and then have something that's quite casual mm. from that as well. Yeah, and what people, I think what's quite interesting with names is that some people, it's like the name almost starts to influence the human. So Artemisia, mm. um, I can't pronounce the last name, the Italian last name was the first female artist. Wow. And so okay. Missy is an artist and yeah. she draws and she's a storyteller and she that's paints. Cool. And so I think there's something quite interesting like, does what we name people, does that start to imbue them and start to influence them? It's kind of that nature and nurture. I know one Missy who is a creative and an artist. Ah. Yeah. There we go. That's pretty wild. So I'm trying to think about mine. The only thing I can kind of tap into, I used to have a, a really great teacher, and um, Rianeth was her name, first name, which I really like. But also where I'm from, there's a famous park, which is a name, a girl's name, which is... Part of a girl's name, sorry, which is Angharad. That's cool. Which I also really like. Mm. Two Welsh names. I think you're cheating because they all sound better in your accent. <laughs> right. There is a little bit of that, right? <laughs> but you got an accent. What can you say, right? I know, but I don't think Come it sounds on. quite as good. You're not from around here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to start, right? How come you ended up in New Zealand? Oh, that is a good question. Um, the time I was living in Alaska, and all the people that I met from New Zealand were my people. <laughs> they were adventurers, they were interesting, they were curious. Mm. 
And I was looking, I was looking to move to a city. I needed to move to a city to kind of really do the kind of work I wanted to do. Living in a small town in Alaska wasn't, wasn't working at that stage. Maybe with the current world, remote working, you could do that again now. And New Zealand somehow came up on the list. And I was like, oh, yeah, always been on the bucket list. Let's try it. But you hadn't been here before? Never been here. That's bold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people say that, but I think it's actually easier than mm. moving and knowing one or two people because by coming here and knowing nobody forces you to get out. Yeah. And I had a saying that first year that I was in New Zealand, which was almost 10 years ago now, was to never say no. And so I said yes to every invitation. That's cool. And it was exhausting. I was going to say. <laughs> but you've been here 10 years now, nearly. Almost. Wow. That's trippy to think. Because you're from just a linger. Because we have a little bit of a connection before we met, right? Because you're from a place called Missoula. Mm-hmm. Which I only know as passing through Missoula's in, a, in Montana. And not a lot of people would know Missoula's, to be honest, right? No. So, yeah. It's a brilliant town. It's one of the best places on the planet for me when I visited there because I used to go to a, an event called Hatch in Bozeman, which, is, again, nobody knows. is in Montana, which is further down the list of Missoula, right? It's smaller again. Um, and, yeah, I stayed a couple of ta- times in Missoula. Great place. Big university town. Yeah, go university Bobcats. Town. Oh, wrong one. That was Bozeman. <laughs> oh. um, so cool. Close. Interesting. You might you might find Missoula pretty interesting, James, with your background. Missoula, um, I should probably check this stat, but the stat that we love to say is it has the most nonprofits per capita of anywhere in the U.S. Nice. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. And so it's quite a um, maybe compassionate town. There's a lot of really interesting good projects, like for good projects, mm. which is a really nice place to grow up in, yeah. to be surrounded by surrounded by that and surrounded by people who really want to make an impact. What, what, why do you think that is? Is it sort of, is it um, the structures, the governance, or is it the, you know, why are the people that way more than other I think places? It's, I think it's community. Yeah? I, I think that a lot of it has to do with community and culture, right? You start to have a certain amount of people and you start to create that momentum and that inertia around a way of thinking and that draws more people in to a similar way of thinking. I think that if you look around the world, you'll have different kind of communities that start to just tend different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, Montana, uh, back in the day, I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s, um, was one of the movements to create uh, some of the wilderness areas. And so one of the first wilderness areas, I think, was actually um, uh, also from just around there. And then the Wild and Scenic River Act, so again, to protect rivers which is probably similar to kind of some of the talking that's going on around New Zealand right now in terms of protecting rivers and giving them, what is it, personhood? Personhood. Okay. Mm -hmm. I need some education. Sounds like you know more about this one, the personhood here. Yeah, just granting like a a river or a a mountain, you know, the status of, in a sense, an individual, a person. Yeah, which then affords them certain legal rights. And, And I guess... Once you start to create, I think, you, people are drawn to that, and then more people come, and I think you start to create a bit of a culture. Uh, and that's, I think, a really nice example of it happening in a positive way. I think sometimes, you know, we look around the world right now, um, sometimes it happens in a less positive way. 
try not to bring us down too much. Mm, that's truth. But mm. uh, it's culture and community is really powerful, I would say. And then the leaders in those communities, what's, mm. the, what's the word that's being said? What is the acceptable way of thinking? And how do you influence it? Did that have a massive impact on you in terms of then setting out that the world decide what you want it to be when you grow up? don't know if you know that when you're a kid exactly now looking back <laughs> kind of reflecting back oh. do you think it informed your I mean absolutely yeah. but I think like your parents inform your mm. good friends inform who you choose to be friends with as a as a kid mm. I have no idea how much of an impact that's going to make right so some of my very best friends from my early years um one is a human rights lawyer for like um uh child refugees and one is a um, social worker who spends a lot of time um, kind of doing healthcare work in Africa and this is from small town Missoula so quite rare to have people that have left but again I think it comes back to that culture in that community I don't know what do you think James I think you've spent a little bit of time thinking about this subject yeah I mean I think culture and community is amazing but I, I do I've sort of become more interested in, you know, what are the integrity systems that are set up in a, a different area to allow that. And I think, um, you know, the stronger those are, the stronger those are, the, the more likely it is for that to occur. And when you don't have particularly uh, strong integrity systems, um, I do think that they're easier to break um, and that... Um, corruption can feed in and then it just sort of gains a bit of momentum like a snowball I think and, and those are those challenges so I've become you know particularly fascinated with how do you create systems and structures within within anything within communities within businesses um, within your own I suppose moral decision making framework to to act you know with more integrity or, or act more ethically um, so I'd be fascinated so a few you know this like the um, uh, democracy indices and things like that, but I'd be fascinated to sort of see, um, yeah, what what are some of the structures that are uh, that are there, that and whether there is a, a correlation between that and um, uh, yeah, the the lack of corruption or the you know the generosity that's been um, infused into that town. Good point, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that's something um, could very well be the case. But when you leave somewhere when you're, you know, eighteen, you're probably less aware. And yeah. now you only go back to visit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, although I did love going back to visit. Uh, and but that also leads me on one of the things you mentioned was integrity systems. Like, wh- what do you mean when you say integrity systems? Yeah, it's uh, one of the things. Um, I actually entered through uh, Transparency International was the first time I heard. Um, the term being used, but essentially it's just what are, I suppose, the rules or what are the frameworks that are put in place um, that ensure that people can act more ethically, I suppose. So it might be, um, I suppose, you know, there's been a a challenge um, recently where some people were... um, being um, bullied, basically, uh, at a lower case, and then the only people that they could report to were their managers, and it was the managers that were doing the bullying. And so then when you look at that from a structural element, 
you can see that there's obviously a, a break in that, that that's not going to ever work because they're also in charge of um, you know the hiring, firing, pay rises, mm. and so it's basically just can create more of that culture. Whereas if you can bypass that and you know have a an ethics team or you know a board that um, people can speak directly to on on ethical issues, mm. uh, then you can bypass that completely. And I think you know that's an example of an integrity system that's been put in place. To, to mitigate that or a, you know, speak up policy, uh, whistleblowing policy or... Um, whistleblower yeah. policy. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, just to stretch that uh, a little bit further, where do you see that playing out uh, here in New Zealand in terms of, you know, you're a local lad, although mm. you've travelled a lot, mm. but specifically if we could just focus on New Zealand, because we're always quite high up in terms of the trust best place to do businesses, most cor least corrupt, sorry, nation, yeah. one of the least corrupt nations in the world. However... Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot, I think a, the positive is there's actually a huge amount of work that has been put into that, and I don't yeah. think it necessarily just happens by coincidence. And so when you look at, um, you say, the Corruptions Perceptions Index, you know, um, you know, there's an analysis on what is New Zealand doing, what are the systems, and that's why we've come back as, uh, you know, first equal... Um, because, you know, we have all these systems in place which, I suppose, you know, have external auditing and our integrity is externally audited, so there are ways yeah. that we can ensure um, that our democracy is not broken, that, you know, when we vote, you know, I don't even think about whether it's going to be counted or not. I have complete faith in that, and that's an amazing thing. Um, we're first equal. I think, you know, one of the challenges that we have in New Zealand is you suddenly become complacent because, you know, people go, we've got no corruption, we're number one. Yeah. You know, and, that's, and that it is really awesome, but yeah. there's still huge amounts of corruption. And I think the challenge is where, you know, we're comparing ourselves um, to other countries, which, you know, in my opinion, it's uh, really low. And so we're setting a really low bar and we're doing the best of, um, you know, wow. what is not a great job. And New Zealand has, you know, huge amounts of corruption. So Deloitte did a report recently and, um, you know, uh, corruption is a everyday part of business even within New Zealand and, you know, maybe it's something slightly different. It's a facilitation payment rather than bribery and, you know, there are, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of nepotism within um, New Zealand. Um, so how do we, you know, continue to improve and not become complacent that, yes, we're number one, but we've just got... Um, leagues more uh, work mm. to be done um, and I think that's quite exciting as well because you can sort of imagine um, yeah, where do we want to get to and I think you know, especially at this you know, time where uh, I think we've all been a bit rattled by you know, what's happening in the geopolitical systems and how you know, this idea of peace and security you know, we think is so stable here and, and how easily that can crumble yeah. you know, um, what can we do to make sure that we've, um, you know, we do live in a more you know, I think equal place, so equality in New Zealand is not very good, and so I think that's something you know, that New Zealand particularly needs to work on. Um, yeah. Is this uh, some of your work with the uh, Brian Picot? Brian Pico, yeah. Pico, sorry. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the ethical leadership stuff, you're on the board of advisors there. Yeah. I, I didn't know too much about that. Could you give us a, not just an idea of that uh, entity, but also ethical leadership as a concept? And yeah. a deliverable, I suppose. 
Yeah, so the Brian Pico Chair of Ethical Leadership um, is um, at Victoria University and I have the privilege of uh, sitting on the advisory board with um, uh, Professor Karen Luthaisen, who's the, the professor there. Um, and I suppose it's the idea of um, if we're going to be doing leadership, you know, how do we um, A, embed that into everybody? Um, and it's about, I think, training and giving people the tools to know how to make ethical decisions. Um, and a lot of it is just it's learning and you know practicing. Um, so there's a range of you know different. Eth- everyone knows the you know the train dilemma. Yes. Yeah, that the old trailer <laughs> train. Yeah, um, and so just help you know putting people through these situations and examples of you know trying to determine what is the ethical thing to do, what is the not ethical thing to do, um, and often you know it's if if it's a real ethical dilemma. There's never a yes no answer, you know. Mm. So it's very rarely an easy one. So how do you train people to to have the skills to analyse, you know, what that is, to take different ethical approaches, and then come out which is, um, you know, hopefully the the best solution that they can come up with. Um, warning signs. Um, so, you know, there's certain things that people will say um, that you sort of go something unethical's, you know, most likely going to happen here when, you, when okay. someone sort of says something like oh it's okay everybody does it you know things like right. that and you sort of go let's I, I should i should just have my senses a little bit more on alert when these things are being said so yeah. and those little um yeah fascinating yeah so the work that you do there uh where does it go into informing then the ma and leadership or what what is it do. Yeah, so um, there's a, they do courses at the university, um, and so uh, and that's been fun. So I got to be part of an online course as well. Um, the human good is in conjunction with that. There we go. There's yeah. the book. Yeah. Got it in. Yeah. I mean, just, <laughs> Come on. Um, that's my first question. Yeah. yeah. Jump, jump ahead. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. So so wrote a book about you know how to make these different decisions. And then also interviewed um, people that I think are in you know unique decisions where they have to make ethical decisions. Um, And so, you know, I I know there's, uh, if you take, say, Ashley Bloomfield, for example, um, his ethical dilemmas are quite different from mine, you know, where if he makes a decision, you know, it is not going to affect him and his ethical decision. It's going to affect, you know, the whole country. And it's also going to be scrutinised by the whole country. Um, and you also have the the joy of politics as a as a layer on top of that as to what are the decisions that you have control of. You can decide what you think is the most ethical. How do you do that with so many um, competing values that you know people? Uh, what's most important to a lot of different people? And so you know, how do you choose what's going to be? Um, keep people the healthiest or do you choose uh, what's going to give people the most freedom Um, and so there are these fascinating competing things and and you've got to make a call Um, and the I mean the the pressure that is on him is absolutely unbelievable and I'm very glad it's not me (laughs) you you featured him right yeah yeah and it was just fascinating, and you know, we talk about other things as well. Just how do you deal with that pressure? And I think that's another thing. You know, you want to, these people. You want how do you if you're trying to be, you know, if you're being a leader and you've got to make these things, how do you look after yourself as well? And you know, simple things like 
going for walks, you know, and getting out into nature, all the stuff that we know. And, and, and so there's sort of those two sides, and it's, it's just fascinating to sort of... Because uh, it's not, you know, uh, no one in the book would say that they've, they've nailed it. You know, they're, you know, they're 100% ethical. Everyone's somewhere on that journey. Um, and, yeah, so we talk about, you know, times that, you know, you've had an ethical dilemma and maybe made the wrong decision and, and why you made that wrong decision and, you know, what would you do better next time? And, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's really, for me, it was fascinating doing all the different interviews and just such a different range from... You know the the chair of Air New Zealand to uh, say Sam Hogg, who's got a, a small regenerative farm, mm. and it's um, amazing the crossover. Um, but it's also fascinating to see those differences. Mm. What a privilege to be able to interview all those people. It was a privilege. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm, I'm quite I'm quite jealous. The curiosity of me, I would just love to do a, a project like that. Who um who would you still like? To interview oh, everyone, <laughs> yeah. Um, they didn't get to. I, I don't know. We haven't thought. We just sort of. Um, I think the book almost came about a little bit by accident, you know, where you, you just keep going and it's just fascinating, and then someone says, "Well, we should get an ISBN number for this, and you know, we'll turn it into a, a proper yeah. book." And um, I think. I think I'd be really interested in looking at ethics from different cultures would be fascinating um, and and how that can differ. So, I mean, it was interesting talking with L'Oreal given that they've got, um, you know, businesses all around the world and, you know, how do you try and create that almost, you know, universality of, of ethics and, and what happens there. And um, so I, I do a lot of work in Papua New Guinea and their, you know, just how they'd view things um, would be very different, you know. In New Zealand, we're very much about um, and trying to move more towards, you know. I, we talked about about it earlier with nepotism, you know, identifying conflicts of interest um, and making sure that that's separated from decision making. Whereas, mm. I would, you know, assume that the the general system, say in PNG, is, you know, um, and, and maybe because they don't, you know, that country doesn't have the same um, integrity systems within their government that. They have as much um, safety and reliance. You know, their um, I suppose circle of security and safety is is their family. Um, Something called the Wontok system. And so there, you would all you know, it would be crazy not to try and get your brother or your uncle or something like that to to work with you. And so it's just a very you know different um, view on on what is the right thing to do. And I'd be fascinated to. Yeah, just look at that a little bit more. You know, um, uh, I, I did a lot of work in Thailand, um, and I ended up setting up some free educational facilities there and looking at. We did that because I didn't necessarily agree with the ethics where, if you paid money at the school, the highest mark, um, sorry, the lowest mark you could get was seventy percent. If you didn't pay money, the highest mark you would get was seventy percent, and so it just yeah, it didn't it didn't mm. really fit. Yeah, with what I thought was was ethical, um, no. but it would be it'd be fascinating. And don't get me wrong, that's just you know that's a bad example. But there are there are plenty of good examples of you know how how ethics is done in, in other countries, and so it'd be yeah. interesting to look at yeah those differences. I think. What's your hope for the book? Uh, my hope is that people get a better understanding of what ethics is, and they use it in their everyday decisions. And it's just a chance for people to 
practice to talk about ethics and then try and figure out uh, we called it a field guide because we wanted it to be practical um, and there are yeah, practical things you can do and um, I think the the best feedback I've had was someone who was really excited about how they used one of the tips to help them make decisions and then they went and one of their friends came to them with a with a challenge and you know he, he was um, using that same learning that he'd done and he was really excited he'd only got to chapter two but you know he'd already <laughs> picked up a few things and that was that was really cool and, and I so think he had a tool yeah he already. had a tool yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's like this you know that part's out of my control this you know I, I've got to focus on what I do have control on this 15 percent and make make the best decisions I can there um, and it was amazing because you know he felt quite liberated by that and and that was amazingly um, rewarding for me because mm. I mean the night before you're about to launch, you're sort of going, what, is this any good? What the hell have I written? You know, and going through. And, and so it's lovely to see, um, yeah, people f- taking something practical and useful out of it so that they mm. can make better decisions for themselves and, as a result, make a better decision for everyone else. Exciting times, right? Yeah. That's cool. Get all the uh, kind of wisdom locked into one space. Well, oh, I think... Uh, I, hopefully that's not uh, all yeah, <laughs> Part of the wisdom, yeah. <laughs> and it's other people's wisdom. A lot as of it well, as well. Yes. So, so no, yeah, I didn't have enough wisdom to get in there. Exactly. So yeah, called the it preface, a few right? others. Yeah. <laughs> but who, who were the collaborators? Uh, so um, uh, Karen, the professor at Vic, uh, myself, and then uh, we had uh, Chelsea Kane and Leanne Duncan uh, uh, doing some of the writing as well. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, it was a real mix, um, and sort of the more. Yeah, but I, I really enjoyed some of the academic stuff as well and, yes, you know, yeah. looking that and getting that in there and making sure it's accessible. I think that's an interesting one because mm. it's sort of um, academia can be quite inaccessible mm. and so um, trying to get it into a way that is um, yeah, useful, practical to people that they can actually, um, rather than glaze over, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, can, can take these things and actually contextualise it and... And it's funny how hard that is to do. Mm. I mean, I was trying to do um, a th- write a thought experiment. It's called Rawls' Theory of Justice. Um, and I, re- I just wrote it so many times and I'd give it to somebody and, and sort of say, do you understand this? And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. And in my head, it's so so clear. And, and I think you learn a lot about it yourself when you're um, you know, just trying to make every word, and, and I'm not saying we've succeeded, but trying to make it accessible and you know rather than saying cryosphere just say the frozen part of the world you know and just <laughs> thanks for just, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just making everything just that little bit simpler because yep. it, you forget how much jargon you use mm. um and i was reading you know and, and so it's actually really useful just having other people because um you know we we're talking about integrity systems before and you have these these words that you use but they're actually meaningless to other people and if, if that's the case then um, yeah there's no no chance of getting your message across mm. so, accessibility yeah. is a really beautiful way I think for us to um, give us a framework mm. to think about how do we make actually things better for everyone mm. like oftentimes when you start thinking about accessibility like yep there's words there's individual words I'm dyslexic mm. um, so some words are easier for me than others yeah. especially spelling yep <laughs> yep <laughs> Uh, but as we try and design and create for all these different 
kind of types of ability, we're actually just doing a better job for mm. the rest of us. Mm. Because, you know, if you're trying to design something, um, a book that's easy enough to open that you can do it with one hand, mm. there's often times that people will want to be reading a book while holding a baby yeah. or carrying something or doing something in that second hand. So um, I love that that's part of how you guys have approached it because it's really important, I think, for mm. us to um, bring it back and not just think about that world when we're looking down, but yeah. really look out and mm. think about design, create for that wide world. I, um, I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> so I think one of the things I was, I'm fascinated about design is there actually becomes a huge amount of you know, decision and choice and responsibility as to how do you communicate information and what uh, mm. information do you communicate. Um, so when you're looking at, say, you know, n the nudge theory with the menus, you know, you've got the decision as to whether you um, nudge people, is the word that they use, into mm. making healthier choices or not. And then, you know, what is the the right thing to do there again those competing is it freedom of choice is it you know if you're coercing somebody is that bad or if you're nudging them which is sort of a gentler term is that good or is that bad and I just sort of wondered how you how approach design when you're yeah presenting information yeah I think that um it's changed I think the industry has changed what we talk about has changed now than when I first got into design and was first mm. learning about it um we didn't used to talk about these things, mm. quite honestly. There's, there's some pretty uh, interesting kind of ethical dilemmas that have come up. Um, I think that some of the e-cigarettes being one of the big ones, mm -hmm. um, the, the creators really started by actually trying to do good, mm -hmm. trying to give people a safer, healthier way to kind of reduce their smoking yeah. habit. It's created a whole other industry. Yeah. Um, and so the, I think the cool thing is that now that's a discussion, design mm. ethics, mm. Um, diversity and inclusion, accessibility. These are all topics that we talk about. Um, we discuss it in our work uh, mm. on, on a daily basis. And, uh, and I think that we have, we have a, a responsibility as designers. If we're going to be creators, we have to think about these things. Mm. But you're right. We don't always get them right. Mm. Yeah. I think that's... Um, it's one of the things we have to accept. And so as a, as a designer, I think you take on that responsibility to try and think things through. So you have to think about all the reactions as they go, um, not just what is coming in front of you, but what are the downstream effects mm. is how I like to think about it um, as a river. And, and then to be open to learning mm. and to be curious. Maybe there's something we've uncovered as we've gone downstream, that is not what we expected, and how might we change course as a result of that? Uh, and so I think there's there's lots of opportunities for us to do that. I mean, I am incredibly thankful to be working in a tech company that has our financials lined up. I think with creating value and doing good. I don't think all tech companies right now have that. I think for some people, it's a bit of an ethical dilemma to take certain jobs. Mm. Um, but where we work at Zero, we're, we're trying to make lives better for our small business community. And that feels really nice. And when we create things, it's actually about, well, how can we create value? Mm. How can we make things better? 
Um, and that's a privileged position to be in. And I don't think everybody is right now, mm -hmm. um, which makes it quite hard. You mentioned before about how the design sector and industry has changed, mm. right? So could you talk to like when you first started nearly 20 years ago? Um, <laughs> thanks. Uh, in terms of your education, yeah. that's when you first started, and what your experience of that to what you're applying now, and also you're hiring at mm. the moment in your position, and we were talking about that outside, like the new fresh meat that is coming in, are they bringing a different way? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are bringing in a different way, and I think it's a really beautiful thing, and that's one of the nice things about being part of a global company is you're bringing in voices from around the world, and you're getting those different cultures, and you're getting those different communities and impacts. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been really big in, in the U.S., especially in the last couple of years, and so as a result of that, that's now um, a topic that comes in. And then we talk about as a community, we're a community now globally of 200 designers. So um, it's a huge privilege to have that many different voices mm. and to try and hire with, with that in mind as well. Because a lot of the younger people coming in are bringing new points of view. They're part of different de generations from myself. Um, so to answer your question, to go back, I think that when we first started thinking about design we we were just trying to do the basics just kind of solve the need i um, mean just this idea of there being a need for a customer or a user that was that was kind of the foundational element at that point in time and and so we're like oh we're going to solve a need in a new and novel way but we didn't necessarily at that point in time at least i didn't um, it wasn't part of the, the general education. Be like, okay, well, now let's think through what are all the consequences. You know, what are, mm -hmm. the, what are the results of this? You know, we used to love to use the word disruption. Mm -hmm. How many years ago was that? Probably, mm -hmm. probably still using it. <laughs> but it was, that was the big buzzword, what, like 15 years ago, disruption. Um, and disruption was seen as a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to think about, is, is disruption, what do you mean by disruption? Um, in terms of an ethical dilemma, when I was in grad school, we were designing for, um, uh, for Africa. We were in Ethiopia, and our project was around what's called a matad. Matad is a, is a big piece of clay that they use to make injera, Ethiopian food. Have you had Ethiopian? <sighs> DK, you'd love it. Sorry. It's great. Okay. It's, it's about the size of of this table, which um, mm -hmm. everybody can't see. So quite, quite large piece of clay that they pour. Um, it's essentially like a sourdough pancake. Okay. And that's what you eat all of your food with. So it's got this great flavor and texture to it. Mm -hmm. And teff, I think you'd be able to eat it. Okay, good. Because it's a, it's a different kind of grain. Mm -hmm. Smallest grain in the world, I'm told. Um, beautiful. Uh, and so our project was... Um, you, you know, I'll fast forward kind of the need that we saw for these people um, living oftentimes in huts. So bare ground, animals in the hut with them, but electricity. Because Ethiopia is a very electrified African nation. Okay. Um, and these pieces of clay, the matad, would break all the time because they were living with their animals. Right. They get knocked over mm. and it was a piece of low fire clay. 
and so the novel approach that we took was to put a steel band around it and tighten it in compression and use some of those ideas of engineering. When you think about um, pre-stressed concrete, we were pre-stressing the piece of clay, putting it in mm. compression, which makes it stronger mm. from any sort of um, kind of a knock mm. so it wouldn't break. What did this mean? We were actually probably disrupting the clay maker's entire livelihood. Of course. Right? It would last longer. Yeah, they don't yeah. have... So they, the, I think we, um, we did the numbers, and it sounded like on average you were buying four of these metods a year, each family, because that's how often they would break. They'd break every kind of three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we figured these would probably last for a couple of years. So what does that do to that industry? You've mm-hmm. disrupted the industry. I think at the beginning, that was a good thing, but that was probably one of my first ethical decisions as a designer. Like, are we doing good? Mm. Mm. Um, and so we spent some time actually going out and talking to people in the, uh, in the clay villages, the, the clay making villages, because there would be a, it'd be a whole village would um, would uh, all be clay makers together and they make pots as well as these matads. And they said, no, it'll be okay. We'll we'll make other things instead, okay. but. I mean, will you? Mm-hmm. I guess so it's at that point in my career and in my education, I don't think we had the tools yet mm-hmm. to really dig into that discussion. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like hit you straight on in the face. But I think up until that point, disruption was seen as a good thing. Yeah. And I think since then, we've had to think, what is our role as a designer? And now it's, it's you know, on the conferences you would go to, um, it's, a, it's a topic comes up people talk about what is our responsibility Mm. how do we create in a way that doesn't that doesn't cause undue harm doesn't have any of those downstream consequences it's massive because i'm seeing that a lot in every month i online mc an event for architects Mm. and a lot of the times architectural designers a lot of the nerds behind the scenes who computational design stuff with parametric architecture so these are really kind of designers at the core right the creators but they talk a lot about that from a perspective of construction industry creates 40 percent of the carbon so they know that deeply so they are already building into their systems you know that carbon reduction strategy or policy or material design or fabrication that actually reduces then the reliance on sand or glass or whatever it is because they know that through their design they can have a massive impact for the better on reducing carbon or carbon Mm. reliance Mm. or energy use in buildings passive house stuff as well as yeah as well as massively reducing you know the um amount of people that need to go to hospital unnecessarily for, you know, rheumatic fever and asthma. And Mm. we just build terrible homes in New Zealand, which is completely unnecessary. And I think that's absolutely the sort of thinking that is required. So, yeah, I'm I'm positive about this new language uh, that you're seeing. And in a sense, uh, the topics will only become much larger, especially because there'll probably be more in the last 10 years, more examples of positive impact that you can draw upon rather than just these few cute mm. ones over there. That, that was good, but that's not how we do it. Mm. We've always done it this way, right? Mm. So, you know. It's okay. It's okay mm. to do it that way. Yeah. We, we accept that's that. That's okay, but that's different. And we've always done it this way and got the results. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of this, 
you're the GM of design. Is that mm-hmm. the, your title? There's there's a few. There's a couple of us. I'm not the only GM of design. Okay. I don't I don't have a team of two hundred. But you sit in a, a yep. wider team, yeah, I suppose. So there's, right. There's four GMs of design. Right. Um, that kind of sit across, and then there's yeah. some other um, some other roles as well. So research mm. being kind of its whole own part of the organization. Of course. Uh, yeah. So I saw you, saw you got excited when you asked the interview question. Because I know that's your superhero strength. Mm. But I had to say, what is Emily amazing at? Interviewing. Definitely. From a design lens, right? So for people who don't know why that's just interviewing, but interviewing for, you know, I've seen your work in when we were employed mm. by Empathy and doing your thing and doing your dance. I'm like, ah, man, she's good. How important is listening and how do you approach good interviewing to discover and uncover these things that then you use to design through? bread and butter stuff Mm. and I'd say I don't think it's just for design I actually think it's just as important for leadership Mm. especially um, kind of really looking back at how my role has changed from being the person that interacts directly with our customers to to run these interviews Mm. or even kind of working with my team to do that to actually sitting back and trusting the team to do that and as a leader I think you also have to listen and ask great questions to get to the bottom of things. Um, so, what did you ask? The how? The how and the mechanics? <laughs> the how is why. Yeah. yeah let's get it. That was the big why. Yeah. You know, how so, important it is also for leaders. But yeah. Number one, yeah. well, number one, I think, is context. You always got to start with the context before you go into the questions because the context is just as important as the question that you ask. Right. What is the context that it sits in? So, um, you know, if we're, if we're talking about an integrity, what's an integrity system? The context of why are we talking about an integrity system is just as important as what the definition is. Because if I asked you that question in an academic setting, I'm probably going to get a different answer than if I asked you in a setting where you're talking to, to kids um, or, a, you know, in a, in a commercial setting. Um, so start with the context, mm-hmm. I would say, always. Um, understand that context and, and what you're trying to learn. And why, why you're trying to learn these things. Uh, And then, yeah, letting people kind of bring their own story. So oftentimes when we ask questions, I think that we ask questions because we're trying to get somebody to say something. Mm. Um, But if you ask a question with enough curiosity to allow somebody the space to bring their own story, uh, with no judgment and just, just curiosity for what they're going to bring, usually your eyes are opened. And I think that goes in the same case of, of uh, kind of asking questions in a customer, in a design research setting or in a leadership setting. Um, you know, giving people the space to be themselves and to bring their own story. Mm. And is that where the five whys can come in? Oh, you can, yeah, five whys. Love the five whys. You love the five whys. <laughs> I, love, I love to try and ask the five whys without asking why. Right. Do you know the five whys? I don't know Is the five whys. Uh, no. Well, uh, so traditionally it came from Toyota, I believe. Um, and there the idea was if you ask why enough times, you're going, to, you're going to progress down to the core, the root cause. So they used it as a, um, so Toyota was very famous for kind of systematizing manufacturing. Um, some incredible operational thinking, operational models have come out of, of, of um, Toyota as a 
company brand. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what you want to call them. Organization. Uh, and you'd ask a question, um, you know, why did the car break? Why'd the car break? I don't know. Let's come up. We'll, we'll just follow one day. What did you say? I drove it too hard. Dr- Why did you drive Fast. it too hard? I don't know. I just like speed. Ah. Why do you like speed? I'm just crazy like that. I'm like I'm hungry for like, you know, the positive kind of feedback loop that you get from driving on the edge. Why do you like driving on the edge? Why do you like, I think why do you I'm like empty the inside. There we go. Wow, we're really, so the, the idea is you, you kind of, I mean, we need to have a, a, real, a real why behind it. Um, <laughs> try and get down to a, a root cause and then uh, address the root cause. Mm. And if you don't get down to that root cause, you, you are only ever going to address the symptom. Mm. So there's kind of different layers mm. of, some of some of the thinking. Um, but I think you can, you can sound like a very eager seven-year-old <laughs> when you ask why a lot. But it's a great easy way to try and get to that root cause, what's mm. really going on. Mm. Uh, but that's where I think not just asking that directed why question but giving somebody a little bit of space where you might be really drilling down a line of questioning, but if you can pull back a little bit and give them a little bit of space to open up um, where they can bring their own story, they might go somewhere in a very different direction than you expected as well. So when you say space, literal kind of pausing and creating silence, stuff like that is... Yeah, you can create silence, love silence. It's a great interview technique. Maybe not as great in this setting. No. The silence. However, <laughs> what other <laughs> models and tools do you use? You like your go-to's, uh, especially uh, in terms of leadership. I'm interested when you said it also applies directly into leadership. Well, I think that um, nobody likes to be told what to do. Okay. I mean, I think we can all agree. Hopefully, you don't like to be directed necessarily, but if you can ask people um, questions in such a way that can help people find their own answer for how to do something when, when somebody comes with, a, with an idea and you can ask questions to help people come to their own realization that you can agree on is a great way to go forward. It's much more empowering from a leadership's perspective than saying, yep, let's go do this, right? Because that, that takes away our agency uh, and I think that, you know, the way that, the way that we like to lead, um, uh, certainly from my boss as well, is, is to create a lot of space for that vulnerability, um, create a lot of psychological safety, um, create that culture of speaking up that you're talking about. Uh, and the more you can ask questions, I think that helps. Mm. Um, I think curiosity is huge as well in that, in that same vein. How do you manage, and James touched on it when you were talking about Papua New Guinea, the kind of different cultural approaches, mm. especially communications or seeing the world differently. And you said, you know, you're hiring globally mm. and managing globally at the moment. Do you see a, a, some, you know, challenging yourself probably in terms of the culture, uh, cultural approaches to leadership and being an employee, whatever that means? Yeah, I think the, probably the first um, challenge is coming to New Zealand from the U.S. Okay. Right? The U.S. has a very much a direct culture. Right. It's like, say what you mean. Mm. And New Zealand has much more of an indirect culture. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be really interested in what you think, James, on this mm-hmm. one. 
<laughs> on the on the cultural perspective. But I think the the first challenge was actually coming to New Zealand and how do you how do you fit in, don't step on toes from that more direct culture. So I think that that's definitely helped me to then think about how can I try and moderate for some of these other cultural perspectives that are coming in. And it's not just the culture of where the human is located, right? So it's not just the culture of hiring somebody in um, the UK. It's where is that human from? What culture mm. do they come from? Are they actually Polish, living in the UK, Gosh. Italian, um, from all sorts of different places? Mm. Uh, so there's your culture of uh, kind of the working culture of where people are placed, but then there's the culture that they bring with them. And there's probably multiple different cultures in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of the people on our team, she's, she's a beautiful example of having lived in multiple cultures, having gone back and forth from, I think it was Canada to Japan growing up, mm-hmm. right? Two different cultures. And she'd go back and forth doing part of her school year in each, right? So that's a different cultural perspective, mm-hmm. regardless of kind of where she's living currently right. at the moment. Yeah, although both very polite nations. Very polite, that is, <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah, James, what, what do you see in terms of New Zealand, I think, is a great hub of bringing people in. We've got a couple different cultures going on at this table. Um, being, being a Kiwi, I believe you're a Kiwi, yeah. born and bred. Born and bred, yeah. set the road. Um, the different cultures coming in, um, and how do you see the New Zealand culture in terms of especially communication, I'd say? Indirect, <laughs> I mean, in short. And, and, and again, I think it's a, it's a huge generalisation, and, and you can't say that everyone's like that. You know, there's um, yeah. huge variation within that. But I think you know, generally, uh, yeah, we, we do have quite a, an indirect uh, culture. We are generally, I think, the tall poppy syndrome obviously is something in New Zealand that's um, quite a thing, um, and, and that's one I'm. I don't think we got right. Uh, I think, you know, we should be celebrating when people do do well so much more and, and be, you know, proud of that and, and learn. So um, I think my favourite thing to do ever is to go travelling. And, you know, I think that's actually where uh, I've learnt most of my lessons is, you know, just being with, you know, completely different cultures and people that are going through different areas. And I think that gives you an enormous amount of perspective. Um, and it gives you perspective in a way that, not that you, um, you don't get to experience it like other, you know, the people in those cultures do, but it gives you a glimpse of, um, you know, what they're potentially going through from a, a physical perspective and, and you scrape the surface of that from an emotional perspective. And I think mm. that's, I found that incredibly useful. Um, so when you sort of come back and you come back to, uh, say, New Zealand, which is um, one of the things that makes you appreciate so much more, is I generally walk around feeling safe. Mm. And that's just so lovely. Um, and, yeah, I, I think... Again, it's that perspective, you know, if we're, if you live in New Zealand your whole life, I don't think you get the, uh, this, just that same perspective of how lucky we can be here. It is an amazing, we've, we've got challenges, don't get me wrong. Like everywhere, we're on a journey. But it's, um, yeah, I'm, I feel pretty privileged to come here. Um, but I certainly miss 
miss things from other cultures as well and hence why I quite like you know the traveling as well because mm -hmm. you just learn so much um, and you can appreciate how lucky we are here as well. So uh, how come you ended up doing what you're doing though? What's your kind of origin story? Um, I don't I don't know what my origin story is from a Superman perspective but mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think it probably was, um, I mean, one of the key changing moments for me was, was working in, in Asia um, and, uh, yeah, on on the vineyard that we're, we're setting up a, a grape farm over there um, and, you know, the we got um, a female team that were doing most of the, the vineyard work and I started to learn and, you know, fairly shortly I could read and write as much times you know some of them and just the you know the the blaring inequality when it's when it's in your face and so yeah. I've always understood you know my mum would make me go and collect money for the Malig Institute and you know so there's sort of a charitable uh, nature within my family but I, I don't think I ever really understood why I was doing some of these things and I yeah. think when you just see the injustice and inequality that happens then it's just much more real and you sort of go that's yeah. It's not fair, basically. Um, and so then I was like, well, my father died when I was quite young. Um, and I think that gives a, a, a finiteness to, to, to life. And I think, you know, well, you're not here for very long. What do I want to be doing while I'm here for this short time? And, you know, it could be a slightly longer time or it could be a slightly shorter time. I'm, I'm not sure. So, um, yeah, what do I want to do? And that sort of came down to, well, can we make the, you know, can I make a better place, basically? And so then that went to, can I create a more equitable and sustainable world? Um, and that's what I've just, uh, I think that really changed, I suppose, my uh, leadership journey. And then that just became the the crux of anything I did. And so if you're looking at, um, you know, a business, a charity or whatever, you sort of, my, my filter is, is it doing this? And if it is... You know, I'm I'm all in and, and want to get involved and and you know hopefully uh, by the time of of demised that it's you know had some positive impact on on some of those things um, and that's been sort of my journey to that and every place that you go you learn far more and you realise you know how much more inequality there is than you ever imagined and mm. um, how what we're doing how unsustainable that is. Um, mm and how short a time we have to change that around. And so um, if we can, yeah, try and do that, that's quite a cool thing to do while I'm hanging yeah. out on this planet. Yeah. It makes me think of something I've been thinking about recently. Um, I, don't have, I don't have full thoughts on this. So hopefully you guys can help me work through it. How much do you think we come from a place of privilege to be able to do something about think about and act on sustainability. Hugely. Yeah. I, I mean, interestingly, when you look at carbon footprints, however, um, you know, it, it tends to be the uh, the wealthier countries that are, you know, emitting the most emissions. So it's, you know, that's sort of two ways, mm. I think. Um, but I think, you know, I think it was Noam Chomsky, but basically saying... Um, you know, the privileged people have the greatest responsibility to change it because they're in the positions that can change it. And I think that's why, you know, uh, 
there is so much inequality because you know the people that need the change often aren't um, in the positions where they can you know have some of the authority to do, to do so and people in privilege quite like having that privilege and don't want to get rid of that privilege mm. Mm. and so we get in this sort of circular system um, and you know inequality's getting worse and I think you know the sooner you know uh, the best democracy we're going to have is if we have a you know educated democracy um, and so I think um, education you know and to everybody is just one of the key things mm. that we need to be um, I just on. I wonder if it's just education, though, because I feel like at a certain point in time, like I feel like I'm coming from quite a privileged position to be able to think about these things. Sure. Have the, have the time, have the money to try and act. We're in the middle of mm-hmm. building a house, mm-hmm. thinking about the architecture. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's all of our concrete. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to offset mm-hmm. um, our house. It's a very difficult process because when we call the concrete uh, provider, he's like, nobody's ever asked me this before. <laughs> wow. Um, we're like, we need the exact volume. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the reflection is that we come from privilege to be able to even have that conversation, to yeah. first have the education, but also the time <laughs> to be able to uh, afford it. And, and I just wonder how, how can we start to move um, entire cultures mm. when we don't all have enough kind of spare time time money bandwidth time money thinking space education to even be able to consider these things Mm. um and it's just recently been that i've i've really been considering that me even caring about the environment in this way Mm. i think i think it's probably potentially very different for other cultures um that are very in tune with the environment and live off of it but at least in the world that i live in the very developed world Mm. I, it's, it's very much a privilege for me to even be able to think about these things. And then I, I look at quite a lot of society that doesn't have that same privilege and say, how can we be expecting so much mm. of these parts of society? And, and as you said, what is, what is our responsibility? Mm. Um, kind of looking around this table, we're all, we're all probably from a pretty privileged position just to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do we, how do we reframe that conversation? Mm. Uh, make it more accessible, as we were talking about earlier, um, not just for those who have that extra bandwidth. And it's been a little bit of a almost moral dilemma for me mm. just recently. Uh, I've almost started to feel guilty for being able to care about this and and have a voice mm. on it. Yeah. No, completely. And I think that accessibility thing is, is key because what we often to partake in these decisions, it's... Um, you know, even to partake in this conversation, you know, can you just take the morning off, uh, come in for a conversation, mm. and that's unfeasible for for so many. Mm. Um, in a, you know, especially if you look at the, um, you know, the financial system at the moment, where, yeah. uh, you know, they did a study recently, and basically, a lot of New Zealand doesn't have the resilience for the stresses, mm. um, you know, that are that are occurring at the moment, and there's just not that. Um, that backing, that security, and then your decision making becomes, um, you know, hugely limited uh, yeah. in, in that. Um, and I mean, that was one of the the key challenges with the UN. Basically, I think is you know, if you wanted to get into the UN, you'd need to go and do an internship where you didn't mm. get paid, 
um, and I know there's you know now there's a few more scholarships and things like that, but basically you're you, you know you're, you're creating these barriers, um, so many barriers for for anyone to get involved, and I think um, but yeah, when we're talking about inequality, that's one of the key. Mm. Um, systems that we need to look at is about how you're actually, you know, you're trying to help, but you're actually doing exactly the opposite by, you know, excluding the people that need to be around the table, you know, and, and, and making, you know, having input into these decisions. Mm. There's another angle there about people not just being excluded from the table, but people not wanting to come to the table, mm. like blatantly mm-hmm. going yeah. like there. I think there has been a, a growth beyond privilege to entitlement. Mm, yeah, and I'm not saying that there's, I don't even know how big that group of people are, but we are seeing a lot of data now, especially the one percenters who own the majority of the wealth, actually create a lot of the carbon because they're private yachts and private, you know, airplanes, and also the amount of stuff they invest in is usually carbon creating. So yeah, they're not going to come to the table anytime soon because you mentioned earlier some people are locked into a systemic way of not just thinking, but now it's almost tipped the balance into entitlement. Well, I've worked for all this. I'm entitled to be the one percenter. Mm. You know, it didn't come to me. Well, you look at the most one percenters, they started entitled mm. and they just continued that journey to become more entitled. Mm. But they're the ones who should be around the table. Now, there's something interesting when you brought up the UN. I thought you were going to then maybe further the idea of, well, how do you create general consensus you know, mm. at a very higher level? Mm. And recently I got in discussion with some, some people and I got invited to a little round table and they asked us to bring an example of, of leadership, collective leadership, you know, astounded and, and delighted you. I was like, wow, that's a great question because mm. I struggled with it, right, mm. for so long. And then I recalled uh, what happened with the Montreal Treaty at the UN, which was the first ever cross the board every country said yes to, which was to get rid of the um, the CFCs and aerosols when we discovered the ozone loan was depleting back in the 80s, right? Mm. And it was like monumental how quick that went from science to agreement to then solution. It was quite a weird thing. However, if you look at it as well, they also had a transition away. They also had pathways, mm. which a lot of these countries, well, oh, we don't lose out on this? Okay, we'll sign. Yeah. I think that's the interesting bit of collective leadership away from privilege into solution-based things because you're already saying you've got almost a solution to the carbon offsets of using concrete to offset it, although that's probably not the best solution. It's a solution, a pathway, right? Yeah. And your entitlement has also, or privilege, has given us a certain level of education to ask these right questions in the right way, to explore using a phone like an internet and stuff. So there's a balance there, right? You can't be guilty for something you're trying to also create good on. Mm. So there's a lot of angles that I came at a reaction to. But the entitlement bit is an interesting one, especially when you're trying to attract the right people to the table to make the right decision to have the biggest amount of impact. Mm. which comes back to something I was interested in recently. Um, there was a report that came out a couple of months ago. love to get your takes on this. In terms of 15 companies in New Zealand create three-quarters of the carbon emissions. Found that, was like, wow, fascinating. Looked into it, was like, wow, this is really credible research. Mm. The top seven as well, or half of them, create half, so 50% of it. So you're like, okay, so you can 
you know, it's a compound, interesting, you know, hockey stick. It's a fascinating. And the top two, I think, one was Fonterra, mm-hmm. which we know is very mm-hmm. embedded into our, <laughs> our, our national identity here and our systems and everything. And the second was, I think, Z Energy, right, and a couple of so on. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating, but also brilliant, because now we can throw three-quarters of our energy into just looking at those 15 companies, then reduce it by three-quarters. That would be brilliant. That would be a great guide in life. Because it's not about bringing everybody to the table. It's about bringing the right people to have the maximum effects, surely. If we're trying to change the system, it's getting the right people to have the biggest impact. Mm. But I've got nowhere with it. I've tried to tweet, you know, some New Zealand Greens and people, and they're just like going, huh? I'm like, this is, fa- this is brilliant. This is like a catalyst moment, mm. surely. So what is the idea of bringing the right people to the table looking like in terms of ethical, mm. like leadership and things like that, but also in terms of design, bringing the right people to the table? Is there something there? Let's take in your I'm, cognitive boxes. Always, always yeah. Um, but I, I think that the interesting thing about the right people to the table, I don't think it's just those people like Fonterra and Zed Energy. I think it's about, that's where I think, um, diversity and inclusion has a huge role to play. Mm. If we, if we actually bring to the table people from a diverse, um, kind of, uh, background, diverse ways of thinking, diverse cultures mm-hmm. that, that are impacted and part of our, this world of New Zealand, I think we're going to get a better outcome on, on that table. Um, that's, that's the kind of the first thing that, that has come to mind is I feel like you see it. Once we start to get lots of different voices involved, different mm-hmm. ways of thinking, we're more likely to bring everybody on the journey because it's going to have to be a journey, right? We're going to mm-hmm. have to go through a transition zone, and that's, that's, the, that's the plan. A transition, um, at, you know, whether we speed that transition up or slow it down, that's a that's another question. Um, but we want we need to we need everybody to be on that journey because if people are pushing against it, it's going to make it harder. Mm. And I think there's a couple ways to do that: is to include them at the beginning yeah. while we're making a lot of these decisions, while we're designing what that is going to look like, mm-hmm. um, as well as the ideas that they'll bring. Okay. I think for something like that, I've got another. Oh, I've got another little laugh afterwards, but I want to hear okay, what Jane, James has to say first. Yeah, I, I often come back, and I and I know it's very difficult to try and, you know, educate uh, a whole populace. Um, but I, I sort of equate everything to voting, and everybody has the ability to vote, and vote with what they decide to do. And I think there's a, a huge challenge when I, mean, I suppose if if we stop buying from those companies then they, they'll change mm. um, and you know we're, we're looking for um, you know you're talking about equal and just you know transitions how do we do that you know how do we actually transition uh, in ways that are um, you know not disadvantaging um, people which is also um, it sounds so easy, but incredibly difficult within the system that we've mm. we've created. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people sort of say, well, "What you know? What what choice can I make? You know, what impact can I have? I've yeah. only got you know. It doesn't matter what I do." And then I I just I don't quite get that because I'm like, "Well, why do you vote then? You've only got one right, yeah. one choice then, and it you know it decides what comp- you know what um 
uh, what people are going to get into Parliament. Mm. Um, so you know you, you have that choice every day with every decision you make, and it's those collective actions that actually allow us to to move away from um, you know one thing that's going to be successful to the next thing that's going to be successful. So yeah. if we're making better choices as individuals and as a group, mm. um, you know we don't. They'll come to the table if we suddenly, you know, change. And there's been, you know, examples of when we've changed. I feel like I need to make a respectful, provocative, <laughs> uh, maybe disagreement. Yeah. I feel like that's potentially coming from a place of privilege. I don't think that everybody in our population feels like they have that that agency sure. no, to vote. I mean, they don't all vote. And to make those individual decisions and feel like they're going to have an impact. And I think that's one of those things when I've been thinking about this privilege recently, I have that agency and I feel like I can make a decision. And I have left some social media platforms in the last few years. Um, I think you have as well, DK. Never joined. (laughs) Mm. Um, But I don't think everybody does. I completely agree. I don't know. I don't think it's uh, disagreeing or provocative at all. I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and I think that's where that's where it, it becomes interesting and different. Is in an ideal world, yes, we, we could create change that way by voting with our feet. Um, but sadly, I don't think that we're there as a community. I don't think that everybody has uh, has the agency, has the privilege in order to even be able to make some of these decisions. Mm. And then that gets us into the second thing, which is you know the tragedy of the commons. Um, if we didn't, if we didn't buy from Z Energy, we would still probably buy that energy from somebody else, yeah. and it would just move that problem on. Mm. You know, we're still going to keep, um, we're still going to keep consuming unless we change things at that more root level. If we go back to the, the five whys, mm. we got to keep going down mm. to the root yeah. causes, Absolutely. as opposed to oftentimes we address those upper layers just to you know bring it back around. Oh, I love it, <laughs> and that's again we can uncover and start to kick over some of the ground there and go, okay, yes, you can do that. But the deeper impact here is, yes, votes count. So we're not saying it's yes and no, but it's yes and. Hmm. And also is about uncovering and supporting Hmm. different ways about going about it. Like if you just take the Zen Zen Energy approach, you know, trying to support more greener alternatives to fuel and not Hmm. driving your car and getting on electric and Hmm. shifting out, of course. but I'm interested in both your roles as well, about shifting tax, unless you want to stay on this topic. But both of you sit on boards, respective boards. How I don't sit on a board at the moment, which is really fun because I'm so hungry to sit on boards and stuff. Um, but that'll happen. But I used to sit on the ex-Wellington Charitable Trust that you know uh-huh. used to run the TEDx stuff and things. But how do you? Who do you sit for, and what do you do in those? respective things and why do you devote your time to those boards well i better start by saying i actually stepped down oh no way yeah yeah yes i I did i sat on the board of shift as a as a founding member so shift um about empowering the well-being of young women um mostly the wellington region but trying to shift that out to a a larger audience we just love to say shift shift um, but uh, as we like to say, once you're part of the shifterhood, you're always part <laughs> of the shifterhood. That's nice. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. So I'm a huge, still a huge supporter. But the the why? Why did I spend time? Um, mm. Spend a lot of my time in that board. 
um, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about that begin at the beginning, that community. I really believe that if we can start to positively impact our young people, our young women especially, mm-hmm. they go on to have an impact on their whanau, on their communities. Um, you can multiply your effect, essentially. And if you can shift the minds of these young women to be really resilient, to think holistically, to be leaders in their community at what level, whatever level they're at, whether they're already a leader or whether they are not quite participating yet, whether it's sports and activities or um, kind of well-being, um, lots of different areas of their lives, if you can get them on that journey, teach them that grit, teach some of these skills, you're going to see the long-term outcomes. So it's, it's definitely the um, invest now for, for payments down the, down the end. Mm. Um, and, I mean, it's so beautiful to hear the stories that come back because they're real human stories about how you've affected individuals' lives. And we made the decision a few years ago to focus on quality instead of quantity. So we'd rather have a bigger impact on a smaller number of young women than spreading that impact just a tiny bit out on a large population. Yeah. And then I think that, again, if you look at that kind of that compounding, that compounding investment, um, we set those women up to then become future leaders. Brilliant. And you just stepped down? So, yeah, about a year ago. Oh, I right. stepped down, um, just uh, building the house, so much going on at work. Um, but I know there'll be another, there'll be another board in my future. Mm-hmm. It'll be quite interesting to see which direction I go. Yeah, um, what things, what things are, are really, uh, wanting your energy. And I think that some of the things that we've been talking about today, um, have definitely been some of those that some of that, um, sustainability equity, equity creating and, and having the, um, the voice on some of these boards, maybe dr- bringing a different perspective mm. in. Um, and that was one of the reasons I stepped down is uh, we had a far too female board. Mm. Step down, make room for some young people, mm. um, some more gender diverse voices. Yeah. That's cool. How about you? Where, where, where are you sitting right now? Um, on a few. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, on just here we've got the chocolate. So I chair the chocolate factory board. Um, uh, 1% Collective yep. with Pat Shepard, uh, uh, recently joined Peoples, helping them. Um, uh, UN, um, yeah, there's a, a number of others as well, actually. So uh, just uh, for me, it's two things. I mean, uh, my my passion has sort of moved. Um, I, love, I love charities, and so, you know, uh, 1%, I think, is a, a fantastic example of that, where yep. the aim is to... Um, a, they're all just a pleasure to work with, yeah. um, but trying to remove, and it was you know um, particularly interesting in COVID, um, but uh, there's a huge amount of duplication of people trying to fundraise, and, and these yeah. small charities are trying to fundraise instead of you know doing what they're doing best, um, and so the idea being, um, you know, uh, we can help them do some of that fundraising, mm-hmm. um, 100% of the money goes directly to the charities. Um, it's untagged, um, and so they can get on to doing what they do best and um, working in their different areas from uh, kibosh doing food rescue to sustainable coastlines, mm. um, a, a huge amount of different ones. Um, and then our role also is um, to make it easy for 
people to choose charities that are um, uh, meaningful to them mm. and they know that we've gone through and um, done a whole lot of you know checking and auditing and just making sure that you know they're um, they're great charities and so it's been yeah so that's that's one uh, it's really fun and then as I said I'm sort of shifting more towards uh, Transparency National I've had a lot to do with as a charity as well and um, I think I've got delegated authority there for commercial um, but I'm not on the board anymore they've, they've sort of separated it um, to this thing which is quite fun um, but yeah I'm, I'm fascinated with what can we do with, with, with businesses and how can we make them uh, be the positive change and and so I think you know currently earlier on you're sort of going okay I'm going to do this business you know we're going to you know the sort of the Milton Friedman model a little bit you know and um, yes there are some negative aspects from this and then we'll try and fix it with charity and, and government money yeah. mm. um, and that just seems so broken to me I <laughs> think it's just mental yeah. uh, so how do we actually you know um, you know we're talking about uh, uh, regenerative agriculture or you know there's things that we're going okay well how do we actually create a business that is going to um, you know regenerate the parts of um, you know the planet or society um, and that's self-sustainable so we don't actually you know become reliant on um, uh, sorry the one percent collective story was you know we had COVID and um, a lot of these charities lost their funding mm. and um, so then yeah. you know people were just so thankful that there was this base layer of funding coming through. And if you don't have that security, you know, it's quite difficult to make long-term decisions and suddenly you're, you know, a flush with money, but you don't actually have any money to spend on operations to deliver the project. Mm -hmm. Um, All these, you know, wonderful challenges that are coming in the the, um, development sector. Um, And so that's why I think, you know, with with businesses, um, if you've got the right idea, you can actually create a self-sustaining, self-fundable model um, so that you're not reliant on these external um, uh, people to support, you know, you going on, and and you can have longer term decision making processes. So, mm. uh, yeah, that's what my governance is really about. How do we, you know, move more businesses to to create good in the world? Mm. Um, and I think the governance side has become a little bit unsexy in the last number of years. Uh, talking to my peers is fascinating. Unsexy. Tell me more. I know. Was I, it ever sexy? Good point. Maybe I, I <laughs> held it up there and now I pulled it back down. Maybe it just never was. You know? uh, let's hear more. Well, from a perspective, some of my mates have done all the courses back in the UK and mm. here to then become an accredited board member stuff. Mm. And then, like, after they do it, they're not interested. When mm. they went into it with this gumption and kind of idea mm. of what you just described perfectly mm. they had mm. that at their, their core that's why I'm doing this but after the, all the ethics and governance uh, sorry all the all the, the course material that got thrown at their faces um, they were like oh kind of it's just all legal stuff really and they understood it from a perspective of as a board certain board members uh, are then becoming legal as a board you know for operations and finances and things like that but really, they were trying to do what you were describing. Mm. And is there a place for making then governance sexy? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, like it what you sexy. described was like, yeah, that should be what I, we're learning. I don't, I'm questioning yeah. what boards they've been on. Yeah. Well, they didn't get to the boards. They did the training well, and just didn't bother, yeah. right? Because they thought it was all that was all that they were going to be. Yeah. Uh, 
Just looking at paper and shuffling things. So maybe I got sure. lucky because I, mm. I didn't do the training first. I kind of like... Same, yeah. I just went into the <laughs> yeah. board. We just went in yeah. and you have to figure it out as you go, which is my favorite yeah. way to learn. Like just, just learn by doing. Learn by fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And post-it notes. And whiteboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just like all of it, it's just it's just coming down, and then and you have to be like, okay, what are the what are the most important things here? As opposed, to, I think from that, mm. um, uh, you know, course perspective, here are all the things. Yeah. Um, whereas you kind of need to just be able to refer to those things as you need them. Yeah. But you got to focus on the purpose. Hmm. I yeah, think. maybe and there's there's a space there for mentoring, rather yeah. than you know, anything else, you know, this, this mentoring people onto boards rather mm. than going through the course. After, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying out yeah. loud anecdotally oh, what I've mm. heard yeah. rather than experienced. I mean, I think I, I like both. I mean, I think right. I, I'd advocate for doing the courses as well. And I think it's, yeah. it's been fascinating when you do join boards and, you know, they're all about the purpose and things like that. And you're like, that's great. And then you sort of go, however, you know, these are all the things you're talking about, say, you know, health and safety, for example, and how mm. you really care about the people. But actually, you've been negligent in you know all your health and safety reporting and all these sorts of things. And actually, you know you are um, not meeting the legal requirements that you have to do. And you know uh, there's recently been that recently anymore, but that you know that change in legislation. Mm. And I think it's tough because it, um, there is you know once you learn all about this stuff, it is quite scary because you know there is a, a huge amount of liability on you. Mm. Um, and that's quite petrifying, but I also think it's done for the right reason, and, and people sort of, I think, going back to your point, they forget that that was designed for a purpose, and they go, oh, I, you know, I just, I had all this reporting for health and safety, and <laughs> da 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 and you're like, this is awesome, you know, like, this is... <laughs> I want you on my board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we, 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 you know, we want to try, I mean, this isn't there to put personal liability on us this is you know we're here to try and make this the safest place for yeah, um, the, right the people that we're here and yeah. so um, yeah. let's report the hell out of this and, and you know let's see what we can do beyond what the legislation says you know and let's talk more about <laughs> no let's talk more about mental health you know what can we be doing in those point, areas yeah. how can we be you know yeah. for me I don't mm. you know for me legislation is always the lowest common denominator um, and, you know, we have a responsibility to try and push legislation to be, you know, more ethical, and, and we should be driving that. And mm. um, don't get me wrong, I mean, you don't want your board report, you, you don't want your board reports just to be looking at compliance and, you know, the strategy and... Um, and potential and some yeah, creative, creativity yeah. as well in there. You can be incredibly creative. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I sort of see as a board is, you know, you do get to test that brain and try different things and, and be creative. And I think that's, yeah, that's really exciting. And then you can just make sure that the reporting and the compliance stuff is sort of done into a manageable systems that, you know, you can basically go through it pretty quickly. And then if there's sort of a, an orange light that's picking up or something like that, then you can go, well, you know, this is something or red light, or, you know, this is something that we need to look into more. Yeah. And then you've got that depth that you can sort of say, well, no, why, why are people continually having accidents? You know, this isn't good. We should yeah. um, not let people do this. And um, yes, yeah, you painted a much better 
and more wholesome picture <laughs> than I did. So thank you for yeah. that. I, I'm glad you're on lots of boards. It sounds like you play a very important yes. role. <laughs> very excited. Oh. Compliance. Yeah, yeah. everybody <laughs> needs somebody on the board really excited about the compliance and reporting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just as excited about the strategy. But <laughs> you know, I think the whole thing, you know, it's, yeah. um, we talked about it with uh, Carbon. Yeah. You know, how, how do you know how well you're doing unless you're recording it? And so mm. for me, compliance is just a, a record of, of how you're doing with all your, against your strategy, really. Um, and then you can totally agree. implement better things to make it go better. Mm-hmm. It's language, again, you mm. say compliance and you take a different view of it, whereas mm. I take compliance, I'm like, oh. yeah. you know, it's, again, language yeah. as, as uh, being imbued with your own personal response to it already. Mm. Yeah. So... Yeah. And you can add you can add a little bit of value on top. I think sure. about, I mean, zero. I think our whole our whole business model is essentially built on compliance yeah. in some ways. Of course, yeah. But reporting, right? Reporting it's, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of reporting. There's a lot of reporting. Uh, but how do we actually make it? You know, minimize it within your day to day, right? And I think we think about the same thing when you're on board. How do we minimize that reporting? Make it as easy as possible, and then highlight the mm. important information. Mm. Right, so that you can start to extract value. Not extract, but kind of create value, I should mm-hmm. say. Extract sounds like we're mining. We're not mining. Um, With the scale of zero, though, you know, I still remember when I first arrived in Wellington, it being talked about, and uh, it was still an entity then that was still very much in startup mode, and then it just set on fire, wasn't it? Mm. It was just boom, and the scalability of it has been massive. You know, from like 2014, I think they sponsored a little bit of the TEDx Wellington at that time. And they were just in their new offices. So that was their massive scale-up yeah. project. And they haven't stopped. No. It's amazing. No. What's some of the stats, you know, off the top of your um, head, like yeah, the usership? Off, and... off the top, well, off the top of my head, I think one of the big ones that I've been feeling a lot recently, um, we talked about this a few months ago now. I think at the end of last year, we were talking about it. Um, as a company, we had doubled in size in the last in the two years previous to that no way something like that yeah Still. something around that yeah mm. so we're over four thousand people globally as a company at this Ooh. point in time okay and so just our design org is 200 over 200 mm. i think we passed 200 a couple weeks ago um and that's it like it's hard to even keep track of where mm. you're at it's just so constant um in australia over a hundred um uh, businesses so if we talk about businesses, business subscriptions, over 100, I mean, it's over 100, over a million. Um, a million. About a year ago in Australia alone. That's pretty impressive, So right? we're somewhere just south of, I think, 3 million worldwide at the moment. I think the last number I saw was 2.7, okay. but I don't know how long ago that was. Do you have any internal dashboards that you can drop into and see oh, yeah, these ab- things? Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. I can imagine. There, but there's so many. It's like, but is that the most important metric? Good point. From right? a design perspective, like what is your metrics? Yeah, you know, is yeah. Is it usability? Is it quickness to file and return or whatever? Like, yeah. do you have those? Yeah, like? there's a lot. Of, there's different ones in different areas, and that's right. what we're trying to work on. I think metrics mm. are really hard. Mm. Metrics mm. are incredibly difficult to get correct. But the metric that you choose and you measure, because you measure what matters, and what you measure becomes the thing that matters yeah. oftentimes. So it's that... It's that chicken and egg problem. Um, and so, again, I don't, I don't think there's always one. And once you start measuring one thing for a while, if it's just, if it's just orgs mm-hmm. that you're interested in, just numbers of customers, is that the correct number? 
I think there's multiples, and that's how you want to think about it. And so we, from a design perspective, will always want to be thinking about about our humans Mm -hmm. on the other side, the humans that are in these businesses, that are inside these accounting and bookkeeping firms, doing the compliance, getting real excited (laughs) about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's zero day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Some people do. That's great. You know, I love it. how do we how do we actually try and make their lives better like that's the i think that's the metric that matters um and if you do that and again this is what i was saying earlier feeling so thankful to be part of a tech company that is lined up with the ethics because if we create value for our customers it ends up creating business value for us when you line those things up Mm. as opposed to some of the business models that are out there where It's free to use, but I feel like I'm being mined for my data. Mm. So crucial, yeah. It's an important. It's an important question to ask right now. What are the? What's the data use policy? Mm. Um, for whoever you're working for. Totally, yeah. Uh, And you should hope that if you're paying for something, there's a deeper level of privacy concern, data protection, or data sovereignty, and all those other things associated with it. Yeah. Love that. We haven't touched on, so I'd love to just touch on it as a, a stake in the ground from a perspective of like your company, Motif, mm. and describing that, because we haven't, uh, how would you, for I, those who don't know? Yeah, well, I, I, think, uh, I think quite similar to how I describe myself. Right. Um, so I think um, you know, we're there to try and create a more equitable and sustainable world, mm. um, and we do that really through... Um, uh, investing in businesses mm-hmm. uh, and also offering um, uh, advisory services to businesses, so um, helping them become more ethical, uh, you know, helping with their environmental or social um, frameworks and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, trying to... Give us like an example of someone you've worked with to help model that behaviour or something? Uh, or change their models of behaviour or something? Um I suppose there's, there's lots of examples. I, I think, I mean, even if we just talk about the, um, say, the chocolate factory, for example, yeah, I'm just because it's here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me a story. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I'm going to do it too, DK, just because you said nobody ever has the chocolate. No. You can tell us a story so I can eat chocolate. Yeah, well, okay. no, it's sure. I think, I mean, I th- there's no story per se, but I just think it's, you know, these are the businesses that you know, they've gone in with such a pure intent and you just want them, you know, to do well and, and show that it can mm. be done. And, you know, looking at, um, I mean, the Vucca example was, was crazy when, you know, trying to promote sustainable sea transport and, you know, the, the problem with that is it's a one-off, you know, and yeah. so although that's fantastic, maybe it's not just going to be a one-off, but um, uh, the, you know, the idea is how do you really try and push, push the, you know, the boat out um, uh, yeah, that was so well said. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. um, reach beyond your grasp. Yeah. Right? At how do we put in, you know, integrity systems? So again, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we we don't have the scale, of, say, um, L'Oreal, who's got an entire ethics mm-hmm. team, but you know, we give um, the number of um, phone number of two of our board members um, that any staff can call them, and if there is an ethical dilemma or a challenge that they're having, you know, they can. Um, speak directly to us um yeah and just making sure that you know it's the whole way through so um 
you know the fair trade again you know we've we've paid for the fair trade um, certification but we we certainly go above and beyond that when you're looking at working with the farmers and right, yeah. um and you know the point being we're still you know there's still a long way to go and you know from from where we're at um which is good and sad you know um i think great that you know we've got to keep trying to push and so we've got a bit of a um you know, a plan as to how we're going to get there, but sad that you know we're sort of one of the more ethical uh, companies in the space, and and how far other people are behind. And so our hope is, you know, we can hopefully create behaviour change that way as well by, mm. you know, continuing to push and, and show, um, yeah, that there are more ethical ways of, of doing it. So, yeah, the ethical ways that, you know get the capitalists on board that shows shows good outcomes yeah yeah that's the that's the idea you know it's it's continuing to grow and you know Mm. so it's it's really exciting and then you do get these um we're not there yet so it's fine but you know how how big do you grow um and you know we've certainly had that conversation with other Mm. uh, entities that we've been doing and also you know you learn like we're doing a um uh, a property development not too long ago and and I was really excited, you know, in terms of we had what the playgrounds were made from recycled tyres and, and things like that, and we had f- community fruit trees and gardens. And at that time, I was like, oh, we've, we've nailed this. And then, <laughs> you know, you learn more about architecture, and um, we didn't actually, we just sold the lots and people built the houses. Um, and then, you know, I've been learning a lot more about, you know, passive designs and mm. solar and, and um, you know, there's just all these ways that we could have improved what we did yeah. um and and that's sort of again exciting at the yeah. same time but you're sort of disappointed you're like yeah. wish i'd known that <laughs> earlier <laughs> you know and yeah. um so and it should become the norm right in a couple yeah. of years time you'd hope that these practices about sustainability regeneration or regenerative mm. design as mm. well as another approach as well um where it's not an extraction methodology yeah. it's a circular economy the mm. cradle to cradle idea you know mm. it's been going on for enough years now that we should make it obvious rather than uh, again a nice little example over there and it's cute mm. but we've always done it this way yeah mm. Bring it back. Yeah. that was 2003 i believe is it that long ago now i believe when the book cradle cradle came right, out yeah. i remember mm. like nice little square beautiful uh-huh. beautiful done mm. first introduced that idea Obvious, and I remember the talk that he gave. I think a mm. TED, and so um, it's a brilliant TED talk where he starts with a, a beautiful graphic or, or photography. Sorry, of uh, they were invited to build a new city in China, mm. and the first image is just the, the plane of where they're going to build it. And he says, "So this is our plan," and the next slide is exactly the same. Mm. He says, "The whole idea here is to have an impact that we don't have an impact mm. on the mm. local geolog- uh, uh, geography and and." the ecosystems, the mm. waterways and everything. It's like, it should be the same, but, you know, we're mm. obviously going to use this space to build a city, but it should exactly be the same from a natural perspective. Mm. And then he talks about that. It's just like yeah. mind blown. Yeah. yeah. And that's that, like the more examples I think we can have. Mm. So Get there's some, there's some people that do have to invest, I think, right now. We mm. need to have those leaders. We need to talk about them. Uh, and then inspire, right? Mm. Definitely. Um, totally inspire, inspire more people so that it doesn't have to be just the just those with privilege. Yeah, or outliers, you yeah. know, with money. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. I wonder if, um, 
uh, the other thing I've been thinking about recently on that same on that same vein, if you kind of go back in, in time, um, however, however many decades ago, art was the community that was really kind of propped up by those who had excess wealth mm-hmm. or enough extra to invest. And I wonder if that's where we're going. Maybe maybe um, doing more sustainable things is the area where those who have a little bit of extra are starting to uh, I guess start that economy off because you need mm. to you need to put some money in to get it going to attract more people to create more ideas mm. and then um, see things yeah. start to flourish love that idea I, I think we're also seeing it become into the economic system a little bit more mm. and I don't think we've nailed it personally yet but you know we've got the ETS system and things like that um, but you know we're also looking at New Zealand's I think we're still um, quite far away but you know there's talk of um, including biodiversity uh, in those sorts of systems, and I think, you know, currently we have our economic model is sort of um, it's not as closely related to the planet around us, uh, you know, yeah. that we'd like, and so as a result, we you know we focus on the traditional, you know, economic uh, frameworks, and this is how we do well in this economic framework, and this is how we don't do it, and that's sort of the world we look at. Meanwhile. You know the the physical world isn't responding the same way, and so I think exactly. you know the more we can, um, you know, we need to just change our economic models and, and actually include the things that we want to be important. And you know, you're talking about that with measurement in a business, mm-hmm. and I think it's you know the same with our society. Um, how do we reward you know the things that we want to happen and, and not you know the bad things? And and that's where I think we need to, to move as a society. I think long term. Mm think long term for some of these things I feel like a lot mm. of what we've currently got is very short term motivated mm. and if we can create some of those some of those levers some of those models frameworks that have long term outcomes mm. like again going back that's like why we sit on boards right mm. for these long term gains mm. yeah um, can there's also that? a challenge there with the recent IPCC report that we don't mm. have long mm. oh yeah in terms mm. of our sustainable environments there um but there are some beautiful examples, some of the Iwis out there doing 100, 150, 200, 500 year strategies, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you can learn from that. Uh, however, we don't, like I say, the current system doesn't have, it's so extractive, it doesn't have enough, we don't mm. have enough time to think long term about it. We need to radically shift mm. almost. Mm. I, I Thinking think about both, the long term yeah, impact exactly. and radically yeah, yeah, action. Yeah, yeah. No. So, yeah. I, I love that long term. Perspective. I just think it it's is beautiful, right? Yeah, one of the and it's. I mean, I think the first uh, we're in. I was in NASA, uh, and just hearing these people, you know, working on these projects that, you know, they're dedicating their lives to, yeah. that you know they'll never be alive to actually see when that goes, um, and I think yeah. the perspective that the astronauts have had from, you know, looking back on this tiny little dot, you know, and mm. all our conflicts and joys and all that, you know, just on this mm. tiny dot and how just innately unnecessary, mm. you know, so much of that is and, you know, how we need to, we can, how easy it is yeah. to change and, and how difficult it is for when you're on here to change. So, um, well, yeah, then. same with Iwi. I just think it's, there's something so selfless, you know, when you're sort of saying, this is our time as guardians, um, mm. you know, and and how that changes as well. So, you know, that end vision um, is the same, but you sort of go, well, we didn't know about um, 
I don't know, the, you know, this particular chemical, you know, when the strategy is made, but we know where we're trying to get to and we now know that exactly. we're getting rid of this yeah. and, you know, and I just think that's, yeah, it's so exciting. Generational thinking, I think Patagonia as a company is leading the way and it came out recently with a report about there's only seven generations left or five generations left of soil um, in in our kind of... Oh, I did uh, not see this yeah. one. Oh, this is oh, you're... Yeah, the latest one. It's just like scary stuff that should move us into, like I say, that more immediate action that needs to be taken and more then weight needs to be given into that. What are the pathways for action in our privilege mm. but also to get the other people at the table? And I'm also conscious of time. So I want to kind of also say, what haven't we touched on that you expected to talk about? Any other screaming idea? Well, maybe not, maybe not a screaming idea, but I definitely came in being thinking that um, oftentimes with authors, at the moment their, their book gets published, they're thinking about the next book idea. Good question. What's the, what's the next thing that you're going to dig into after this? Uh, to, to be honest, I, I, I don't have any clue. Uh, and, 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 and maybe some authors are like that, but I'm like, oh my goodness, we got through one? How the hell did that happen? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, I've got no intention to write another book, um, but that's probably why I will end up writing another one. Um, and, and I think these things, for me, they happen from... Uh, just that, I think that curiosity, you know, that creativeness, that, that desire to, um, you know, to, to try and help people make more ethical and have the tools to make more ethical decisions. So, I mean, I assume it's going to be around ethics in, yeah. in some way or, or <laughs> sustainability or um, inequality. I mean, I think um, there's some fascinating, you know, economic books on that and, you know, how do we change the systems and, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> You're so right. They're always like, and the next book. Maybe not always. Not always. We've now learned. Not always. (laughs) So to round it up, what what are you thinking about uh, for 2022? 2022. It's crazy. For the next seven months of six, what are we, nine months of 2022? What are you hopeful for? What are you going to be throwing your energy into? What to throw the energy into? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of different ways to think about it. There's uh, there's different kinds of energy, right? Mm-hmm. There's like your kind of your headspace or your attention space. I would say um, I am unfortunately throwing my energy into my old projects, which would be kind of house build stuff going on at work. And then there's I think what lights your brain up, right? What are those sorts of things? One little um, kind of like small little tendril of an idea I've been thinking a lot about recently is um, the different roles that we play within organizations. Um, and specifically, I've been thinking about people who come into a large organization that I find myself in recently, um, but are coming from an entrepreneurial background. Mm. I think that there's something that you learn when you're doing your own business, and how do you bring that into any of the different kind of companies that you move towards? It's, it's a different kind of human. You learn different mm. things. And how do you bring that and contribute that as a as a skill as a as another type of diversity? Yeah. Um, when we start when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I always like to think about it in terms of diversity of thought, because mm. thoughts kind of the output that you get from whether it's 
you know, different sort of cultural backgrounds. So I've been thinking a lot about that. That is a different kind of thought diversity. Thought, you know, yeah. were you raised in large orgs? Were you raised in small orgs? Were you raised as an entrepreneur in your kind of working style and thinking style? Mm. Well, government and private sector. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, charities we we talk about some of these, um, yeah, like the three sectors, but I don't think we talk about that kind of that large org entrepreneur mm-hmm. and how more of that entrepreneurial thinking. I think if we can get that into some of our large orgs, mm. I think we can do some really amazing stuff. Love that. Thank you. What about you, James? Keep on keeping on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I think just trying to do. Um, as well as, I think, trying to balance it with more time in the bush, going for walks, spending yeah. time with my partner. You know, uh, the reason I came back to New Zealand was because I can be close to my family. Mm-hmm. So maybe doing some, you know, some family things. Um, and then, yeah, trying to create more, well, you know, help other people create more ethical businesses and, and ideas and, yeah, equip people with the tools to do that. Love that. So, yeah, that's what I think I'm going to try and focus on. And then maybe a little bit more um, travel again, mm. but maybe not. Um, that's all yeah, I mean, we're, um, my partner's Czech and so supposed to mm. be in um, uh, the Czech Republic in a couple of weeks. Um, wow. And so, you know, it's very, uh, yeah, mm. we, you know, we don't know what what the right decisions are. And, um, wow, that's challenging. Mm, because her family's probably still all back there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, mm. Yeah. Wow. What about you, DK? Yeah. I'm going to nick your answer <laughs> and keep keeping on, right? Surviving is thriving at the moment. Yeah. If you're just sustaining, that's good enough. <laughs> Whereas before we used to go, hmm, but no, at the moment, that's okay. The general kind of malaise of anxiety that is constant in the last two years, whether it be mm. COVID or geopolitical things going on and now... You know, the sustainability, climate change really ramping up. It's just a bit bonkers. So if you're kind of keeping your head above water, you're doing well. Let's be honest. Mm. So, yeah, I'd like to work more on my mental health and my capacity to be more hopeful. Even though I think I have a lot of that there, it's kind of running a little bit dry at the moment. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of, no, oh, I need to fill it back up and infuse myself a little bit more. And be hungry for collaboration. I think I said this previously to someone we were talking to. Really open to kind of working with more people like in groups again right rather than doing solo ventures which is mm. this isn't solo because i got john off wait uh but you know what i mean like bigger yeah. bigger entities bigger mm. bigger kind of um briefs mm. say. whatever that might mean just playing with others i'd like to play i miss playing with others mm. yeah we've had yeah. a little bit of a lack of that yeah as an extrovert i've definitely been feeling it i can imagine yeah working from home is not your the best thing for a sustained period of time right Oh, this is my favorite thing, right? Mm, ideas, yes. bouncing ideas off of people. We need more of this. Yes. Let's keep it up then. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, time. DJ. Thank you. Yeah. This is fun, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for lending us your ears and attention. Again, big shout out to John O'Tucker over at Empire Films for producing the video podcast. You've just listened to the audio podcast, of course. Check us out at creativewelly.com for the video podcast. But John O can be found at Empire Films. Check him out. He's a great guy. And big shout out to David Hamilton again at 
Flash Dog Studio for hosting us where we film the Creative Welly series. Thank you again for lending us your ears. Keep having courageous conversations with bold humans and we'll be back very soon.